are attempting now to start a discussion on the subject of the principles of pathetic interpretation. That's a rather high-sounding title, I'll admit, and uh, I don't want to raise your hopes too highly. When uh, Brother Mike invited me to come down here to the sovereign state of Texas, to the Bible school, he said he wanted me to uh, talk on the subject of prophecy. But I assured Mike that I'm no authority on prophecy. I uh, don't uh, proclaim to understand it all. And I want to make it clear that any interpretations that I should give later on in the week are not to be taken too seriously because I may be wrong. I've been wrong before and I expect to be wrong again. In fact, uh, there's an ancient uh, Persian proverb that's appropriate here. I don't know if you can read that back there. He who knows and knows that he knows, he is wise. Follow him. He who knows and knows not that he knows, he's asleep. Wake him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not, he is a child. Teach him. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not, he's a fool. Shun him. <laughs> I think perhaps I belong in class three. <laughs> but whenever you find someone claiming to belong to class one, maybe he belongs in class four. <clears throat> so, without further ado, we'll have nothing more to say about authority in connection with this. So the purpose of our study, I will read these visuals because I doubt very much that you can read them clear at the back. The purpose of the study is to uh, provide a guide for the intelligent understanding of Bible prophecy. And we say it is only a guide and all guides may be fallible. But in any event, we hope we can give you some things to think about and maybe uh, find later on that you can make use of. And secondly, to provide a background for the consistent interpretation of prophetic revelation. Now, uh, the basis of prophecy is that God has spoken. And whenever one speaks, one usually has a purpose in speaking. So we sometimes question whether that is true with every time someone speaks. But in any event, we can illustrate this by this arrangement. Wherever there is communication, and as I told Brother Jim uh, yesterday that he was sort of upstaging me on this, stealing my stuff, 
but uh, I said I was going to say something further on communication myself. Namely, the, uh, we will divide this then into two agencies, one that we will call the sender, and what the sender has in mind is an intent that he wants carried out. And so he communicates his intent in what we will call the message. And he hopes that this message will have an impact on the receiver, on his mind, and that the impact will be sufficiently great so that it induces in the receiver a form of behavior, behavior that is desired on the part of the sender. But in the process of communication, there are many opportunities for foul-ups, for the uh, result that is desired not being achieved. The greatest communicator who uh, we have had in the human race, of course, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. But he recognized fully this opportunity for the message not getting across. And if you'll turn to the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John, where he was in conflict with the Jewish rulers who did not like the messages that he was giving to the people because these messages threatened their authority. He said, beginning at verse 43, Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will or intend to do. Ye was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Skipping verse 46, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. So then, Returning to our visual here of the receiver, the message may make a favorable impact on the mind of the receiver. It may make an unfavorable impact, or it may make no impact at all, as is unfortunately the case. And if the wrong impact is made, then we can be reasonably sure that the desired behavior will not be forthcoming on the part of the receiver of the message. I want to have you turn next, if you will, to the prophecy of Ezekiel, the second chapter, which illustrates so graphically the problem that we are talking about here. Ezekiel had just been given a marvelous vision, a vision of the glory of God 
as it is to be manifested in the future. And so beginning reading with the first verse of the second chapter, Ezekiel is receiving a communication from God. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me and set me on my feet. And that I heard him that spake with me and spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, the receivers in this case, a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, that thou, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. In other words, Ezekiel, the prophet, was conveying the thoughts of the Lord God, the Almighty, to a rebellious nation. And whether they will hear, or whether they will forbear, meaning not hear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. For thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. No briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear, or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth, and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, an hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein, and he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentation, and mourning, and woe. This was not a pleasant message that Ezekiel had to deliver. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak into the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with them uh, my words unto them. And so the attitude of the receive, initial receiver of this message, namely Ezekiel the prophet, was a favorable one. It had an impact on him, and he delivered the kind of behavior that was asked for. Now with regard to this process of communication, as we all know, there are definite problems associated with it. And on this visual, we want to take the time to point out these problems uh, because if we understand that these problems exist, 
perhaps we may not be overly discouraged when we don't get anywhere with preaching uh, the truth unto other people. Again, uh, with the idea that in any communication there are two parties. One we call the sender, the other the receiver, or at least we hope there is a receiver if we are sending the communication. Now, I want to make it clear, in this case, we are talking about human senders and not about the divine sender of the Word of God. Because these things that we have on this side do not apply. Uh, there is no noise, as we call it, in God's message. And perhaps we should explain what is meant by this. Uh, in the uh, audio uh, uh, trade, and in electronics, they speak of what they call a signal-to-noise ratio. And what this really means is how much of the volume is taken up by extraneous noise that interferes with the receiving of the signal. And I'm sure you've all had the experience of trying to talk to someone on the telephone and there is so much ba background noise or in the radio of static which interferes and makes often unpleasant the message that the, the sender is trying to send. So when we speak of noise here in this visual, we're talking about uh, those elements which make it difficult for the message to be properly transmitted. So as we indicated, in the mind of the sender, there is a thought that he wants to express. Now why would we have uh, indicate noise associated with that thought? Well the noise in this case can be merely the fact that the person isn't able to think clearly enough and to frame the message in words that can be rece readily received and understood by the hope for a receiver. And we all know that uh, we have difficulty sometimes in expressing ourselves. And people say, I have it in my mind, but I just, just can't put it into words. So that is one source of noise with human standards. Then related to that is the noise uh, that involves in, when it says semantic encoder, this means if I have a thought like I'm speaking right now, I have to put the thoughts that are in my mind at the moment into a code, and this code we call language. And uh, as I said earlier, if we cannot properly translate the thought into suitable language, this then garbles the message up or produces noise. Then, assuming that we have put it into uh, suitable words or other form of transmission, uh, then you have to send out a signal. The signal in this case is my voice. Uh, uh, in other words, I am speaking the words that come into my mind for the purpose of expressing the thought. But again, there's opportunity for noise here. Uh, maybe uh, um, I have laryngitis or something like that. 
so that I can't uh, speak the words loudly enough to be heard or uh, something else goes wrong that I can't uh, make it intelligible. But in any event, then the signal goes out from the sender and it has to reach the uh, receiver by some sort of channel. And there are various channels. The channel that I'm using, well, I'm actually using two channels at the present time, and people nearly always do when they speak. But when we read the Bible, there's only one channel uh, over which the message comes to us, and that is the written word. Uh, and because of the limitations of this channel, uh, it is more difficult for people generally to get it than if they hear the word spoken. Because when the word is spoken, we have more than one channel in operation. We have both the sound, uh, which if the receiver is not deaf, uh, vibrates the eardrums of the receiver and hopefully commits the uh, signal to the uh, receiver's mind. But in addition to that, we have what the receiver can see, in other words, the visual channel. And in addition to what he can see and associated with it is what we call body language these days. Because you can uh, express what you're really thinking by your, what we call our body language, that is the expression on your face, the positions you uh, assume, uh, the, your gestures and so forth, help to put across the idea if they're done skillfully. And this is one reason, of course, why uh, the use of the prophets was so uh, effective wherever their message would be received because the prophets could communicate on all three of those channels. Whereas, as I say, today as we read the Word of God, we are limited to only the one channel, which is by the written Word, which of course has to come in through our eyes. And so then our eyes or ears or both are the detectors involved. And if something is, if our eyesight is poor or our hearing is poor, this makes it difficult to understand. And, but if the words can be perceived, then they have to be decoded. What do we mean by this? Well, Brother Jim illustrated this yesterday in his uh, visual that he had of the word chair. Languages are nothing more than codes. And as he pointed out, the code consists of a number of words. And depending on the code or language that you're using, various sounds or printed words uh, in various languages can mean the same object or same thought or concept. Most of us would try to would try to read Japanese. Maybe all of us we wouldn't be able to get a thing out of those things that are written in Japanese or Chinese or uh, Sanskrit or whatever other language we're not familiar with. So we're very much dependent upon uh, our ability to uncode 
the message that has been put into code using words. But here again is the opportunity for some noise or confusion. Would you believe it that of the 500 most frequently used words in the language, in the English language, there are 14,000 recognized uh, meanings given to those 500 words, an average of 28 meanings per word. So then, as uh, Jim's visual pointed out, a word means one thing to one person, but possibly another thing to another person. The technical term for this is connotation, that which is based upon our own experience. The abstract word itself is called technically the denotation, the basic meaning of the word. But as I used to illustrate to my man uh, beginning management students when I was uh, teaching at the 3M company, uh, let's take the word mother. What does it mean to you? Well, of course, I said, does it mean, do, do you visualize when you hear the word mother, a cow moose? Obviously not. But the denotation of the word uh, cow moose, uh, uh, when you use the word mother, well, the basic denotation of the word mother is a female with offspring, whether it be a cow moose or a human mother or anyone else. But the connotation of the word mother to you depends upon what your experience has been with mothers. And this can be very sweet or it can be very bitter in the case of certain individuals. So therefore, our experiences have so much to do with what words mean to us and it enables us to understand why brethren in one section of the Christadelphian body can use a passage of scripture that means one thing to them, and those in another section can use exactly the same passage of scripture that means a different thing to them because of the association. Uh, uh, and then finally, even if the thought is received, whether or not it is translated into action depends upon how that thought impacts our mind. If it impacts favorably, then it may secure the action that the sender desires, and the receiver will put it into action. And so then, superposing this on the other, we can see the division of the parts of the communication process. I've gone over this very rapidly, and it may not mean too much to you, but taking then the example of Ezekiel and God's message to him, he had to communicate to the people that God had chosen for his own nation what God had to say to them. And it was not flattering, or, and you can be sure, not pleasant to them. Isaiah had a similar job, as you read in the first chapter. Uh, God told Isaiah to say to them, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. They had turned so far from obeying God, and uh, the message just was not being received. So then God used his prophet 
as means of communication, and we want to turn now to a very familiar passage in the beginning of the epistle to the Hebrews, where the writer says, I believe it was the Apostle Paul, though some have strongly divergent opinions, uh, God who at sundry or various times and in divers manners, or different ways, spake. That is the important thing. God spake, he communicated. In time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by or through whom also he made the world. Then let us skip over to the beginning of the next chapter, where uh, we have the admonition. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, or as the Revised Version says, better drift away from them. Drifting is an easy thing to do. You don't have to put forth any effort. You just relax, you let go. And, but you move, but you move downstream and not upstream. So therefore, we should take this warning also, because we can let them slip or drift away from these things that we have been permitted to hear, which the angels were not permitted to hear. And now he is making a contrast between the message heard through Christ and the apostles and that which the Israelites in the wilderness heard by the law. For if the word spoken by or through angels was steadfast, in other words, it stood, if a man transgressed the law of the Sabbath by picking up sticks, the law said, in this case, of course, by direct communication through Moses, that he should be stoned, and he was stoned. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. That is, again, this, this is just a little hint that this is the Apostle Paul writing. It was confirmed unto him by those that heard Jesus. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. But what about the children of Israel? We have read what God said to them. Uh, they were a rebellious house, and whether they would hear his words or whether they would refuse or forbear, at least they would have heard. And let's turn to the next chapter in Hebrews, where he is proving that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses was. Beginning at verse 6, where he says, But Christ, after us as a son, over his 
house. The word own should be omitted there. It's not in some of the manuscripts uh, because it's God's house that it is talking about in which Moses was a servant. Whose house are we? If, and an important if, we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And now he quotes from the 95th Psalm, which spoke of the behavior of the children of Israel. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit saith, today if ye will hear his voice, the voice spoken at Sinai, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation or trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, because he was writing to Hebrew Christians, proved to me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. In other words, they chose their own ways rather than God's ways. And because of the fact that they would not receive God's ways, as we read in the 103rd Psalm, it said uh, God uh, made known his ways unto Moses, who, like Ezekiel, was willing to receive the message, but his acts unto the children of Israel. They had to learn the hard way. And because of this, then, it says, uh, continuing, uh, So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. There are two rests involved here. The intended rest for the children of Israel after their wilderness wanderings was a rest in the land of promise. And they but exhort one another daily. While it is called today, in other words, if we read, now is the day of salvation, now is our day of opportunity. Now we are, the bride of Christ is being given to prepare herself, that she be made ready to enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And this is a very eloquent expression because sin is indeed so deceitful. And one of the greatest and most prevalent forms of this deception is self-deception. This noise that we can inject into the message that God intends for us to receive, this noise begotten of our own human lust and our own human laziness as well. He says, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. Now I want to skip over to the next chapter, uh, where uh, at the uh, sixth verse, he says, after speaking of God's 
swearing in his wrath that the Israelites should not enter into his rest, the unfaithful Israelites, that is. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in, enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, faithlessness, refusal to receive God's word which told of his ways. Again he limiteth or defineth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time as this said, today if he will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, meaning Joshua, had given them rest, he, God, would not have afterward, uh, would not afterward, uh, then, uh, pardon me, would, then would not afterward have spoken of another day. And this is the day that we look forward to. He says, it concludes, there remaineth therefore a rest or a keeping of a Sabbath. And we will have quite a bit to say on that subject later on to the people of God. The rest that is promised. And so God has had a plan or a purpose from the beginning. And this we have tried to portray in the visual. Uh, showing the uh, overall uh, layout, we might call it, time-wise, of the purpose of God. We speak frequently of God's 7,000-year plan. And here we have it displayed linearly, that is, proportional to the distance along a line. And uh, we have BC dates up to this point which represents, of course, the birth of Christ, uh, B.C. meaning before Christ, A.D. meaning in the Latin Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. And this is a 6,000-year period of the kingdom of men. Up here we have corresponding dates in A.M., which means, again, it is Latin, Anno Mundi, which means in the year of the world. In other words, the time reckoning starts uh, when Adam was created. Then we have another 7,000 years, uh, which is the kingdom of God, which corresponds to this rest that uh, the writer to the Hebrews was exhorting that we labor to enter into but that doesn't end things because uh, time then with the earth and the population will go on and this is a mathematical uh, symbol for infinity, in other words, without end. It might just be interesting to show how with regard to the uh, expansion of time uh, various important events have taken place, starting here with Adam. Here we have this much time elapsed before the flood and uh, about B.C. 2349 and then the call of Abraham here the Israelites going down into Egypt 
the Exodus, then the Israel established in their own land, and the beginning of the Sabbath and Jubilee count, which is B.C. 1435. Then, in 1095 B.C., we have the monarchy established, that is, the human monarchy, when the people rejected God from being king and wanted a human king to lead them. Then, here's the ten tribes being carried away captive into Assyria, and then Judah carried captive into Babylon, as we mentioned last night. Next, the arrival of the Medo-Persian Empire, then the conquest of Alexander, and then Rome putting an end to the Hasmonean dynasty, which was a little help with which uh, they had been helped, a little about a hundred year period of freedom, till Pompey captured Jerusalem. Here then, of course, is the birth of Christ at the dividing line. The gospel proclaimed to the Gentiles in 36 AD. The revelation, supposedly in 96, which we accept as a reasonable time. Then the downfall of the Roman Empire. Then, uh, uh, next comes the, the gyra. Mohammed's flight to Mecca to Medina, which was the beginning of Mohammedan time. Then the establishment in 800 AD of the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne by Pope Leo I. Then, if you remember, there was a feudal system of wars that took place known as the Crusade, which get their name from the Latin crook, meaning cross. These were the supposed soldiers of the cross who went down into the Holy Land and did far more damage than the Mohammedans had ever done to it. Then the end of the Eastern Roman division of the Empire in 1453 when the Turks took it over. And getting down closer to this dividing time, and notice what a short period this is, here is the French Revolution, which caused a great convulsion in the kingdoms of men. And so we see so much has happened in a relatively short time, and later on we will show another visual, uh, concentrating more on uh, these later times, to show you how everything accelerates to a crescendo of activity, as we might call it. We're getting back then to God's communication uh, with his people spoken of there in Hebrews 1, which we read. God used dreams to communicate to certain people, and examples of such dreams came to Abimelech. Remember when uh, Abraham and Sarah were in his territory, to Laban when he was pursuing Jacob, to Jacob when he had the covenant confirmed to him, his dream of the ladder reaching to heaven, to Joseph, in his own dream at home when the sun, moon, and twelve stars did obeisance to him and earned him the envy and hatred of his brethren. Then the Pharaoh, whose dreams Joseph interpreted much to the benefit not only of the Egyptians but also to Joseph and to Jacob and his family. And then last evening we spoke of two dreams which God gave to Nebuchadnezzar as communication. God 
spoke sometimes to humans by angels, as for example Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Lot, to Moses, if you remember Stephen in his defense before the Sanhedrin spoke of the angel which spoke to Moses in the holy mount, Manoah, the father of Samson, uh, had an angel appeared to him, and others at various times, even Balaam, the wicked man who works the condemned in the message to the seven churches. Then God used spokesmen who were not necessarily prophets for communication, and one of the best examples of this is Aaron, because when Moses demurred uh, against doing what God wanted him to do, to go back to Egypt to liberate his people, and he protested that he was not eloquent of speech, God said, Aaron shall be thy spokesman. And then finally, the Old Testament prophets. The Jews list a total of 47 prophets and seven prophetesses. People to whom God communicated for the purpose of passing the message on to his people. Now, who were these prophets? Some consider that uh, by and large uh, they took the form of roving minstrels who went about uh, over the land uh, proclaiming the word of God, more or less in song, because after all, Hebrew, when it is spoken uh, as uh, the language is used among the Jews, is sung. That is why they have cantors or singers in their synagogues. But in any event, the prophets were chosen from a wide variety of human occupations. Among the prophets we have kings, and the most prominent of these temporal kings was David. Uh, Peter said on the day of Pentecost that David, being a prophet, and even a king who was not a righteous man, was caused to prophesy, namely Saul on at least two occasions we read of and the people were so amazed they said is Saul also among the prophets many of the prophets were priests such as Jeremiah and Ezra and Ezekiel and various others some were judges you remember Deborah the judge some were even herdsmen as Amos then the greatest prophet of all, who was not a king in his realm at the time, but the future king, our Lord himself. Then his apostles, and various apostles uh, spoke prophecies. And of course the most notable one of the apostles to prophesy was John, uh, particularly in the book that we call the Revelation. In, as a general rule, the prophet's life was not an easy one. In fact, it was, in many cases, a very hard one and often terminated 
in death. And if you remember Jesus' denunciation of his nation, as we read in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, uh, beginning with uh, verse 29, he said to the rulers, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Jesus says, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them that killed the prophets. And as the Bible uses the word children, it often means of the same character. And this is what Jesus meant here. In other words, you are prophet killers too. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets, namely the apostles, and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. We know that James, the brother of John, was killed by Herod. And some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily, I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. I think my time is up.